if you ever see something that seems too good to be true or seems too simple to be true, it likely isn't. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Never before have we as a society had access to information at the breadth and speed that we have today thanks to advances in technology. And yet, despite this incredible progress, despite the opportunity we have to harness all that we know in front of us, it feels like we're still fighting for the legitimacy of science, research, and data. Now, granted, we also exist in a time where a term like fake news is unfortunately a part of the cultural zeitgeist, and people, some at the highest levels of government and society, actively campaign against science to fuel their own political, business, or ideological agendas. But misinformation and the spread of it is not a new phenomenon. One could even argue that it has existed for as long as the study of science itself. We've seen it when we talk about climate change, vaccinations, women's health, even the wellness industry. But something about the COVID-19 era feels different. Maybe it's because we're still in it and pummeled daily with a barrage of persistent misinformation that has focused on wild conspiracy theories and flat-out pandemic denial. It feels like things have come to a boiling point with this culture of doubt, and it begs the question, have we lost faith in science? On today's episode, I'm speaking with Greg Brown, one half of the social media sensation that is ASAP Science. Greg and his partner Mitchell are queer educators and started their channel almost nine years ago and have since amassed a social media audience of over 9 million followers who tune in daily to learn about a wide range of science topics. They are, quote, making science make sense and were recently also featured in TikTok's first ad campaign in Canada titled It Starts on TikTok, which celebrates Canadian creators who have made an impact through the social media platform. As cases continue to climb and we enter various stages of lockdown in Canada, I wanted to speak to Greg about not only how they started their channel, but the culture of misinformation, what we can do to curb conspiracy theories, and how to think more like a scientist. Okay, Greg, ASAP Science, how are you today? Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I'm good. How are you? Well, you know, pandy life. I'm at home. Our existence has been limited to the four walls of our apartments, I guess, or condos or houses or, you know, wherever we're respectively living. A gray malaise of Toronto (laughs) in winter. Exactly. So you and your co-host, Mitchell, are the duo behind ASAP Science. How long have you been doing this for now? So eight and a half years. We're coming up on nine years in June. And a year after that, it's a decade. <laughs> That's incredible, actually. I know. How has that experience been? The reason why I say that is because we've been talking a lot about this 10 years on YouTube, like Milestone coming in a year and a half and just thinking like, wow, like it feels like a long time. The platform has changed so much. It feels wild when you look at your whole life as like, you know, if you're lucky between 70 and 80 years, the fact that like one eighth of it is spent doing this is just sort of mind boggling. Cause like when we started, we're like, this isn't even a job. 
Um, of course. Well, and like, you know, if you consider the pace that not even just YouTube, but social media in general and, and digital media in general, uh, the pace that it moves and the evolution of these platforms and mediums that we talk to our audience, a lot can happen in 10 years. I do think that science has been really helpful for us because it is evergreen and it is something that people are always interested in. I think the only reason we've been able to still be on a platform for eight and a half years is because we have like a mission statement that is pretty ubiquitous. Right. And I want to definitely get to that mission statement. But, you know, if we kind of rewind a little bit. So you and Mitchell both met uh, at the University of Guelph studying biology, was it? Yeah, we met studying biological sciences. We're actually, it's so funny. Like we are in a relationship. We're queer educators who who are dating who run this together and recently like we've we thought everyone knew that and then, like we have made like enough videos about it but on tiktok recently we just sort of it's just a different type of platform where we're more open and or you just it lends itself to being ourselves and so many people are like they're dating like what <laughs> like yeah, so it's so funny. I'm just like even hearing you say like your co-host, your partner. I'm like maybe it's just because we've been saying these things for so long, no one realizes. But yes, we yeah. met, and that's when our relationship started. But we didn't ever start making this YouTube channel until we had left university, and I was in teachers' college, and Mitch was actually sort of doing some things on YouTube, but also working in a lab. So we met at university, but we didn't start the channel then. Now, I have a confession to make. I obviously work in media, but I actually went to the university as a biochemistry major. And I very quickly discovered that that was not my destiny. (laughs) The OCHEM labs, which is organic chemistry for non-science people, I guess, borderline traumatized me as a student. You know, science was not my path. So I commend you both because it's tough and it's ever-changing, but also just so fascinating. And you're constantly on this learning journey. Um, I imagine every day must be different for you both. Yeah, that's interesting. Everyone always has such a hard time with organic chemistry. It's like a sort of like a, <laughs> it's like a stereotype. I've, I always loved the visual aspect of organic chemistry. My degree is actually in biological science and visual arts. So I always really love that. Both Mitch and I, and I think everyone finds lab work to be really quite challenging. So it's interesting, like, we've managed to create a career where we actually don't spend that much time like in a lab like a lot our way of communicating science involves having really other smart people do the work in the lab find the information and then we get to synthesize it and for the masses which i think is really important but every day is different it's really fun because we get to follow what we're interested in and then deliver it to people we haven't really necessarily like gone the route of like what's happening in the news. We disseminate. We've done that a few times. But yeah, really, it is like every day is different. We're deciding what we're interested in that day, which can be a huge challenge, too, because we're like, what the hell? Like, what am I interested in today? Lots of reading, <laughs> like copious amounts of reading. But I don't blame you for falling out because of the lab work. I once went in my lab class went to get chemicals went and sat back down at the wrong lab bench and everyone had different experiments so i sat at <laughs> someone else's lab bench that that is the type of person i am mixed my substances in and it started to get so hot and then exploded and broke all the glass and it was in this like calm class where everyone was just doing their own thing and i created this explosion and the ta was like nothing here should be exploding <laughs> 
you know, we're on the topic of science, obviously. And I think that that is a very topical conversation and dialogue that we're having in 2020 and in culture in general. We live in a very frustrating time, let's say, where a society that has benefited from advancements in technology and science and modern medicine also vehemently and boldly denied the validity of science at the same time. So as someone who has built a platform on educating around facts and science, how is that experience navigating that been like? It feels very acute and very visceral this year as we go through a public health crisis and global pandemic. <laughs> like even saying out loud now still, I'm like, wow. Like it's just like you don't necessarily know if that's something you're going to experience in your lifetime. And here we all get to be like, woohoo, we're part of history. Like, yay. <laughs> um, but I would say prior to it, we were well aware of those issues. We were really trying to focus our channel on talking about the climate crisis I would say about a year and a half to two years ago, we were like almost going to fully focus our channel on that, make a big pivot. And so we were already sort of feeling what it feels like to have people deny science and to have politics and the politicization of science become a thing. So when this pandemic happened, I think a lot of people might have been shocked about the reaction and how it got so politicized, whereas I think it was it was not really that shocking to us at all. It's really depressing, in my opinion. I think one thing we see is that there's this idea that science isn't political. A lot of people in the science world think, like, it's not political. Like, it's the truth. But it's like politics is what funds science. Politics is really important to science. So I think what happens is like the innate politicization of it creates this like polarization as politics becomes more polarized. Inevitably, so does science, which is just really depressing, but it's not that surprising when you think about how they function. And I think it's just, it is a really fascinating part of our time. I think when we look back at history, we're going to be looking back at the response that people had right now to science and to this like, world that we've been thrust into where science is going to be what saves our lives while simultaneously being something that people think is like hurting our lives. Yeah, because misinformation and this culture around misinformation is not new. There's, as you say, uh, a lot of that culture around climate change, which is, you know, intersects with politics and business. As it relates to the moment in time that we're in now and the pandemic, do you think that we're also experiencing an infodemic? Yeah, for sure. Like, I think it really is the technological era like that we live in. I know I keep talking about looking back in history, but I think that's something like as a scientist and science-minded person you do. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about in 50 years, what are people going to think about this time? And I think if you really zoom out, it, it really comes down to Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> Twitter, these YouTube, these places that we have made our living on have been thrust into the spotlight of the places where we're all sort of like almost digressing on the positive aspects of them and really starting to critically think about what they're doing. And I think an infodemic is a part of it. I think one thing with science that is always going to be a challenge, and we see it in making our videos, is that science isn't like sexy. It's not going to ever give you an answer that's clear. It's very nuanced. Every time something exciting happens, 
there always has to come with caveats. The nature of the scientific process is to have a hypothesis and a discussion and then to end with why was your experiment innately like wrong and how would you make your experiment better? And finally, what can we do to know more? Like it's never about having the answers. In fact, the concept of the word fact is something that is like in many ways can be debunked as a word because like things are always going to change in the future we might look back at some of the physics we look at now with new mathematics insight and like looking into the depths of space and have a completely new understanding of life, consciousness, all these things. So we've always understood that. And we've really tried to utilize the algorithms in YouTube to sort of give people really catchy titles, really catchy thumbnails, make it seem like you're going to get the answer. But something we pride ourselves in our videos is that we don't ever by the end of it, say like, and this is the answer. It's usually, it's like this study said this, this study said this. So you're kind of tricking people into understanding the nuance of science while trying to make it work on social media. And in order to do that, you have to make it seem simple. And I think what's yeah. happened in the world is that people are tired. They, you're right. There's an info. There's so much information. They don't have the capacity. They want the sexy answer. They want some quick information. And that's going to be a lot easier to take up your intellectual capacity and move your neurons if it's made up, if it's sexy, if it's simple. And that's how you figure out if what you're being fed isn't true. If someone is telling you something and it seems too good to be true, that's when you need to fact check because usually it's not necessarily the case. You know, building on that, I'm sure you must have the naysayers, the trolls, uh, I mean, online environment in general is just full of it. So how do you deal with the people that try to discredit the information that you're presenting or are very cynical about it? Do you try to even change their minds about the topics that you're covering? This is so interesting. Like the concept of trolls, it's like, like if I'm like having a drink with friends, RIP that concept. Um, there's also some of them friends who like realize they opened a can of worms. And what I'll say is like, it's a can of worms. Because when it comes to something like climate change denial, let's just start there. People who deny that the climate crisis is real, that's really, really challenging to change their mind with facts. Like we have found countless research and we know you cannot change their minds with facts, which is obviously very frustrating I think in Canada, we find that moving the needle on the climate crisis has been a little bit easier. Like our population is smaller. We're innately more socialist. We understand what it means to allow our, our governments to regulate us, which is a big part of what is going to need to happen for the climate crisis. Then we look to places like America where we get inundated with their culture and their media and we see how messed up it is for them because they have such binary like issues. We move over to Europe. It's a little bit easier. We move to China. It's a little bit easier. So sometimes it's like, okay, what are we talking about? Like if we're talking about Canada, Europe, and China, I think I'm a little bit more hopeful with this sort of concept of allowing the government to regulate us, which I think really is part of the reason why people deny climate change. They don't want this quote unquote socialist governments to come in and start being like, we actually have to regulate this, which is innately what has to happen. So with that, we, when we make our climate change videos, for example, our newest one was the biggest lie about renewable energy. You don't know which side we're on. If you see that on YouTube, it's like, wait, are they coming after renewable energy? What it ends up being is that uh, we've been lied to by oil companies that it's not possible <laughs> to um, survive off <laughs> renewable energy, which is not true. In fact, wind and solar has become so cheap and so efficient that it 
is if you don't switch to wind and solar right now, you're screwed. So America, if you're listening, like, come on, like get on it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a tactic that's emotional. People don't know what side it's on. When you watch the video, you're like, we're, we do have to like target people's heartstrings. Whenever we've sort of been like, this is how you talk to climate change deniers. We've from the get-go been like, this video is not for climate change deniers. This video yeah. is, for, is for people who accept that the climate crisis is real. And here are just some tactics that we are helping you understand how to talk to them. In which case we say, don't bring up facts. Don't argue with people because that's not actually what is going to help. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other part of us that we have to deal with as science communicators when it comes to trolls, where it's people like we are queer. So like, that's also an interesting like intersection where even the fact that like my voice is feminine is like sometimes harder for people to listen to. Like people think of science, they think of masculine. There's a lot of trolls that come at us from like, like a homophobic angle. We also really like to dissect science from the perspective of it not being this perfect thing. Like essentially science and white supremacy were born at the same time and they relied on each other in the beginning to flourish. So we like we don't shy away from talking about those things. So we get mm. trolls on that. We get trolls on the side of people who like love science and think it's so perfect that all of a sudden we're trying to criticize it there. So like it's funny like when you bring up when you like I re- we really are like we have strong opinions on things. And we really don't shy away from them. And we really get trolled a lot. <laughs> like, we definitely talk about a lot of things that people aren't willing to talk about. So it's funny when you say trolls, I'm like, oh, yeah, we've got the climate change deniers. We've got the people who deny evolution. We've also got the people in the sciences who don't want us to bring up that it's all white and male. And that's a huge issue. <laughs> like, Right, right. We're not making it's, it easy for ourselves. <laughs> it's like the uh, the scene in Mean Girls where you have all the different lunch tables, but instead of uh, different high school cliques, it's different troll cliques, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, then, you know, you cut to the science nerd table. We're obviously sitting there, but in the movies, it's a bunch of nerdy guys. And then we're like, oh, we're actually <laughs> like gay, queer guys who like to party. Like, we're, we're not even like, we're not even at the nerd table. Like, I don't know what table we're at. Like, I guess we should be at the theater table, but like. <laughs> We're at the theater table when I talk about science. I don't know. <laughs> we are in dire straits. As we head into the 2020 holiday season, COVID-19 cases across the country are increasing at record-breaking rates, forcing cities and entire provinces to have very real and serious conversations around a second lockdown. And yet, despite this, Anti-mask and anti-lockdown rallies continue to happen on practically a weekly basis across the country in defiance of public health officials and in support of their freedoms, which have been supposedly infringed upon. But as Greg mentions, science is political because it's politics and politicians that fund science. And when you get politics involved, you inevitably end up with a polarization of views which can lead to mistrust. So how do we talk to trolls? How do we curb conspiracy theories? It can be an extremely frustrating experience to try and have a conversation that lands on deaf ears. As someone who champions science and has certainly had his own fair share of trolls, I wanted to ask Greg about how he navigates those conversations, or if they're even worth having at all. When you study people who believe in conspiracy theories, a lot of these people, it's also a conservative ideology, it's approaching the world through a more fear-based worldview. And 
with that comes what we were saying earlier, wanting simple answers, wanting the fact that your life might be out of control to be blamed on the fact that there's this bigger entity that's like against you. That is really captivating. And I think one thing is that a lot of the people who believe these things, it might mean that their life feels a little out of control. There's a lot of vulnerability there. There's a lot of like things that you can't fix with the facts or with science. And I think that that's really hard to do. It's like so easy to get so angry at people who aren't wearing a mask because you're putting other people in danger. And a lot of them can represent something that you don't believe in, but it really is going to take the patience and the emotional capacity to like empathize with the fact that these people are probably struggling is something that I think helps us. It's like, sure, me and Mitchell have a beer and we'll rant and we'll be mad. But when it comes to actually making a difference, it's like, likely they are struggling. Likely they feel that life is out of control. They don't want it to be their fault. So they're trying to blame something. And I think sometimes that idea of like vulnerability or allowing yourself to think that like they might, and so, it sounds exaggerated, but sometimes what I do personally is I'm like, oh, they're like actually maybe sick. Like, like there's actually something that within them that they're trying and need help with. Like, how can we help them? And so yelling at them that they're wrong isn't always, is, isn't going to work. Um, but I do think that's a, that's so much easier said than done. And I think it's also why uh, in places like Canada and Europe where we have more acceptance of our government and we believe in and we see you know we pay taxes and we see what our healthcare system does for us positively that we are able to um have societies that are less likely to fall into the issues that we are seeing in places like america where it's a lot harder for them to have faith and trust in their government which i think a lot of it comes down to conspiracy theories are like blaming the government as opposed to sort of like taking what they're saying at face value there's this breakdown in trust that we're having right now. How can we work towards building trust with people and sustain it, especially those who are critical of government institutions and health authorities that they see as being indecisive? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. I'm, I'm feeling it right now. Like, it's such a fascinating time. Like, I don't want to ever be like, oh, the pandemic's good. But like, I kind of am just like, woo. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like <laughs> adrenaline flowing, even though I'm at home truly doing nothing. I'm just like, what is going to come of this? I think it can be such a positive thing. Like, I am uh, more of a pessimist than Mitch. He's more of an optimist. You're talking to the pessimistic one. But I'm going to try and be optimistic. Like, I think that something like the climate crisis was so hard to explain to people intellectually. Like this is going to happen. It already is. It is so freaking scary that like, to me, the pandemic is like a shock to people's systems. I think where it's like, Oh my God, if we don't listen to scientists, if we don't put faith in government institutions to do the things like make a vaccine, distribute a vaccine, like we're screwed. So I think that when this ends and when we get our vaccines, my hope is that we get to come back to the world and go, okay, so what's next? I'm hoping that in that moment, when we get to sort of have lived this out, and I think that there might be this like reckoning moment where all anxious right now, but where people, there will be a net positive and the needle will turn a little bit more towards like, okay, that did work out. Because I think it will. But I think there needs to be clear 
outlines from the government. And I think we did a really good job at the beginning, but it's just a challenging time right now as it go, as it drags on longer and longer. But these vaccines are closed or so close. <laughs> when we talk about trust, how do we know who to trust? And maybe more importantly, how do we know who not to trust? What are the red flags around, you know, these sources of information that are asking us to trust them when they're not in fact correct or spreading misinformation? What have you found to be red flags when it comes to sourcing credible information and data? For science, one thing across the board from the get-go of our career doing science communication has just been what I said earlier, where it's like, if you ever see something that seems too good to be true or seems too simple to be true, it likely isn't. Um, we have an interesting like example actually recently where we made a video about skincare where we were trying to do that catchy title thing on our channel where we were like the only anti-aging cream that works. Yeah. Because that's sort of like what you have to title YouTube videos as in order to get people to click on them. And then yeah. we got a response from this like really intelligent dermatologist who was just like, you can't say that. You know what I mean? Like, like we were saying the only anti-aging cream that works in regards to wrinkles but actually, anti-aging means so much more than that. Depending on your uh, racial background, it doesn't necessarily mean wrinkles. It could be like the changing of the pigmentation of your skin. Like, it was really interesting. But, like, when we tried to say something specific to make a viral video, the science came back and was like, no, 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 it's more nuanced than that. So, like, that's like a great, like, tangible example of of if you ever hear something like that, a bold claim, a bold claim, that's when you have a red flag. You always need to be aware of any sort of clickbaity exceptionalist title when, especially when it comes to science. Now, sources of misinformation often come from, you know, various places, including social media, pop culture, celebrities, influencers, as someone that operates in a lot of these realms, um, as someone who is an educator, but also influential, you have a public voice. How do you define influence in this context? I think a lot of the issues are stemming from outliers and people within this world. Like, I don't spend that much time thinking about it. Like, I know there are these people on YouTube, like that Crowder guy and stuff who are like, just like homophobic creating conspiracy theories and really giving people the information they want to hear, even though it's not true. And like, there's always going to be a market for that. And it's just so much easier now because we have these platforms that aren't key holders, which we thought was a good thing. And now we're like, Oh, I guess it's also can be a bad thing. One thing I'll say is that I'm started out on YouTube, ignorant to the negative aspects of what it would mean to have this sort of free open platform. Like at the beginning we were like, Oh, whoa, we're two young queer science educators. Like, I don't know. I didn't feel like that. I'd seen that before. So it's like, okay, cool. This YouTube being an open platform is the reason we were able to make our videos. And that's their log line. That's what they're going to tell everyone. Like anyone can do it. That's why we have these amazing case studies. Look at ASAP science. Look at this, look at that. So for every one of, those stories there's also the other side of it especially with science where like anyone can say anything and they're always going to have the upper hand because they can say whatever they want so i know that we've touched on a few of these points in our conversation here but 
What would you say are the core tenets of thinking critically and being science literate? How can we all think like a scientist and not a conspiracy theorist? To me, observing the world through science is actually like quite spiritual to me in the sense that I find like the most complicated questions in physics that are really getting to the bottom of like, you know, why we're here, <laughs> like the big bang. Like those are the types of questions that really like intrigue me and like make me sort of grapple with life and death. Like it's how I sort of like create a worldview of almost like being happy and relaxing, like in this chaotic world. So one thing I think that science doesn't get enough of is that it's like, it can be a place of like solace because contrary to that, <laughs> a lot of science really is about regulation. And like, that's why I say I encourage people to sort of find the beauty and like the sort of solace that science can bring while simultaneously learning how to make that critical thinking aspect of life fun. I think it really is like we live in a time where there's so much information. We can understand the nuance of things. If we put a little bit more time into learning about what's going on right now, you're going to have this like full view of things, something like a pandemic. Like the more information you read, the more preprints you read, the more complex things become and the more interesting it is. And if you don't spend the time to be critical and look into them, then they're just going to become surface value things that you're not going to know about and then you die. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think your note on beauty and science is really interesting because from personal experience, I mean, I think there was a time where I would get uh, anxiety around like the finality of death. And I feel like the the turning point for me was when I kind of applied a scientific lens to it and understood it from that angle, it illuminated a, a beauty to it. And the same thing goes for, you know, the expansiveness of the universe. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like, I don't know if you've ever seen those. I'm sure you have like those videos that like show to scale, like, yeah, uh, like a, a micron to an atom. To, and then it and goes on and after, like everything that we know in the observable universe. And like, I find that personally so fascinating and very humbling. Mm -hmm. um, but when I talk about it with my partner, he actually finds it very anxiety inducing. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting this, you know, how we, uh, how we apply these perspectives and, um, you know, how we, how we frame our approach to life and, you know, via science and, and get people to believe in it again and turn that ship around and get people to, to believe in science and the beauty in science as well. That's just so interesting. Obviously, like the finality of death is something that I love to talk about. with, And I, again, it's like I can see why it's anxiety inducing. And then I think some people just pretend it like they don't want to talk about it. But I, I think there's such a value in talking about it. But it, that anxiety thing yeah. I find so interesting. It's like I think it, that zooming out, like taking your partner, for instance, if you're just hanging out and you're having a great time at home, yeah, maybe it's going to give him anxiety. But if they're ever like in a situation, say they're about to public speak or something devastating has happened to them, that's when it can become a beautiful anti-anxiety tool. When you're like, then you zoom out. I actually find the process of zooming in and out an incredibly effective way of managing anxiety and stress and providing perspective on things. Yeah. And so... What would you say is your mission? What's your what's the big picture? What's your purpose for yourself and and ASAP Science? 
we had an answer to that question five years ago, it'd be like, <laughs> like I could just say, like, we're trying to get as many people as possible interested in science. Like that was our answer, which is <laughs> definitely what we did. And it's like a very uh, fascinating and I feel so grateful to have lived through like executing a dream and a goal. Like we've done that. We got as many people as possible interested in science and it has for sure shifted in the last, I'd say three years. And that the answer to this question is very much in flux for a variety of reasons. We want to help people understand the current public health crisis. We want people to understand the climate crisis. We also want people to understand that what I said earlier about how science uh, needs to also be like criticized for having a lot of like white supremacy baked into it. Wow. We also do want to make as many people as possible critical thinkers and interested in science. Like we also said five years ago. So. Right. Our answer to that question is really confusing right now. It's a tough time for us. Like we don't, when things are really clear, it's very easy to make content and boom, boom, boom. And just like things work. But in the meantime, I think it's a mix of those things. And then we're going to see if there's any more insights that come along the way. And then it's about insight uh, for us. But with that in mind, you know, thank you so much for the wonderful chat. I've had a lot of fun talking about science and my failed career at science, as well as the current year that we're in right now and navigating all of that. So not um, a failed career that made you interested in it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) While the promise of a vaccine looms on the horizon, the fact of the matter is it won't be a cure to the culture of misinformation. Whether the focus stays on the pandemic or moves on to another area, the reality is there will always be the naysayers, deniers, and flat-out conspiracy theorists. So what can we do as individuals? What part can we play? As Greg mentions, science is not sexy, and when we're all constantly inundated with information overload, the potential for burnout and fatigue is very real. What we can do to think more like scientists is continue to have these important conversations make it relatable, and use the data in front of us to think critically. Most importantly for ourselves, we can apply a scientific lens to find solace and see the beauty in the world around us. Next week on Mission Critical, we speak with Toronto Raptors head coach Nick Nurse about giving back, handling pressure, and how to create a championship-winning team on and off the court. Each season again, presents its own challenges. And that's kind of the goal that's back in front of you, regardless of what's happened in the past. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?